As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer Show and our latest dispatch from the mailbag. It's your listener questions. Today, we're asking or we're debating the morality of watching the forthcoming World Cup. We're asking if Gareth Southgate in England are due for a conscious uncoupling. And we're letting Joe talk about MLS salary data again. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today is a man who's seen the Premier League fixtures are out and he's savouring the prospect of Man United losing at home to Brighton on the opening day with no Frankie de Jong. Hello, Taylor Rockwell. Hello, I would be more concerned about that if Brighton weren't being actively ripped apart and sold for for scraps. Mm. So uh, I feel a little bit better about that, though, by the end of the summer, we'll see if Manchester United actually end up signing anybody to compete with Brighton. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the meme, come on, do something, guy poking Man United crest with a stick today, Taylor. Yeah, I want to keep making the same old jokes, but there are new people in charge, so it seems unfair to go right back to the well of the same old jokes, even if they still seem applicable to the present situation. Indeed. Interestingly, with the fixtures as well, Tate, um, there are Boxing Day New Year fixtures as well. So the 26th, the 31st, and the 2nd of January are Premier League fixture dates. Uh, so that's a few days after the World Cup final. Three games in a week there after having like over a month off. I'm sure there's going to be no injuries at all in those games. Yeah, especially if they get that month off. But if you have uh, some teams go deep in that World Cup, then it's players going right back in there. And I think that will maybe compound that injury issue just a little bit. Fun times. Also joining us, Taylor, a man who probably has opinions on the new Premier League ball, the 22-23 Nike flight. Graham Ruthven, is that correct? Yes, absolutely correct. It It is very nice, but I do... I find it weird when one manufacturer has a homage to another manufacturer. Mm. And if I'm not mistaken, the first Premier League ball was a mitre, right? So yes. that's Nike doing a mitre homage. Slightly strange, but I'm into it. It's kind of weird. Yeah, maybe Nike will do some three stripes on their clothing next. Is mm, they're going to go around homaging it. others. We <laughs> shall see. <laughs> uh, it is a cool ball, though. Um, and I do like the 90s design because, hey, everything's 90s for the kids these days, I guess. That's retro. Who knows? Rounding out our pack, uh, Graham, is a man who is as happy as me that MLS games will all be broadcast in 1080p instead of often 720p. Come on. Thank you, Tim Apple. Hello, Joe Lowry. (laughs) Ryan, that is without a doubt my favorite part of this new TV deal that MLS signed. All of the other details I think are interesting, and, and Paul and Sam did a fantastic, really, a really, really good breakdown of the deal. It's the Allocation Disorder episode from this week. It's already in the feed. Listen to it if you care about this topic at all. But the one thing that really stood out to me was 1080p. I, I cannot tell you how tired I am of watching like four pixels on a screen kind of dribbling a soccer ball around. It is time for 1080p. It's time for maybe even more than that in 2022. But still, what a good step. Like a, a giant step for MLS and a, a pretty giant step for the rest of us watching. Yeah. For mankind. Re- really bringing MLS into 2007 with that 1080p. <laughs> yeah. It's great to see. I'm delighted to see it. Uh, no blackouts in this new deal. Full production and highlights packages. Um, the one thing that was interesting, uh, Graham, is the lack of local broadcasts. Um, mm-hmm. I presume a lot of the talent in local broadcast might be uh, vacuumed up by Apple. It's quite possible. But 
I mean, like in Charlotte, for example, there's been quite a rapport built with the local broadcast team. So I don't yeah. know if that's a good thing. I think in some markets, the local broadcasts are really, really good and they will maybe be a loss because, as you say, there's almost a community around those local broadcasts. But I think in other markets, they are really, really bad. And so it's going to be a bit of an upgrade for for those markets. And MLS is trying to package the league as a single product and having this 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 deal with apple where every match in every country that's the biggest benefit for me joe you're saying 1080p i'm actually going to be able to watch mls or or at (laughs) least the the matches that i want to watch i'm not going to be funneled into la galaxy and into miami games every weekend so uh austin you your eyeballs are uh, my eyeballs are going to be on you next season if you're still good they're still going to be at 2am though graham that's true uh, but I don't sleep at the best of times anyway, so... <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> a, a, a cure for my insomnia, some of the teams in MLS, perhaps. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, Tay-Tay, so we've got Fubo TV, we've got Peacock, we've got Paramount+, Plus. another subscription. You looking forward to that? Yeah, man. I, I'm excited for the, the day. This is an old joke, but I will keep rolling with it. For the day that we're all just like, man, I can't wait for everything to be bundled together into one package that I can buy for a set amount every month. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then that becomes unwieldy and everybody goes back to cable for a little while and then we go back to streaming. And maybe that's just the eternal cycle mm. from now on. It's like when Netflix were like a couple months ago, we're going to start putting advertising on our programming. Well done. You've invented television (laughs) (laughs) good stuff netflix i mean i think it is cool that we've seen so many of the streaming services pivot to sports uh and especially soccer and it makes sense it's the same reason tv networks pivoted to reality tv you don't have to pay for writers or as many writers at least you don't have nearly the as much of like production costs and studio audiences and all that and i think soccer makes sense it's a thing that already exists you put cameras in front of it and you hopefully do that well in the right positions with people talking about it uh intelligently and with good information and it kind of does itself so in that way i think it's a really smart move from apple and then uh in that it makes graham happy i think it's an extra smart move Um, the thing that makes me really happy is the red zone style show on saturday night which is going to be must watch tv for me remember i complained about there being too many teams in too many matches this is the perfect way to combat that issue for me i'm just going to watch that for three hours on a saturday night and feel like i've kind of caught up with what's happening across the whole league, which is a genuine issue for me. There's just too many teams to keep on top of right now. But you'll not follow a single game in the process, Graham, because it'll be cutting to one of the 16 games every two minutes. Stop picking holes in my (laughs) logic, Ryan Bailey. You're you're the biggest Apple fanboy here. You should be singing this deal's praises. I I am. I'm a massive Apple fanboy. I'm very happy about this. Um, Taylor, if um, NBC moves, say, all the Premier League to Peacock, Will you cancel the cable subscription, you think, or would you miss E and TLC too much? I mean, certainly. I mean, the Learning Channel, with all of the many learning opportunities it provides, similar to the History Channel, with all of the uh, the learning opportunities it provides. No, yeah, I'll, I'll keep it, probably. Who, who knows? I mean, I think I need to just have every access to every single streaming thing, so then I still somehow can't watch the movie I want to watch in that moment. Yeah, and still take longer to pick the movie than you do to watch it, blah, 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 so on and so forth. Let's get to that listener questions. Out. Let's do that now, <laughs> shall we? That's what we're here for. Noah Hauk has got in touch and oh says, boy. yeah. With everything regarding human rights violations, I'm going to start that again. With everything regarding human rights violations, when do we say enough is enough and not give Qatar our eyes this winter? Are we bad people if we still watch? We've spoken out about this for a long time, but is it all moot if we still watch the tournament? Are we telling FIFA it's okay? And Noah says he's been really struggling with this. Uh, Now, I think we're all reasonably aware of the issues around the Qatar World Cup. According to The Guardian, 6,500 migrant workers have died since the World Cup was awarded in December 2010. On the same night that Russia earned its World Cup as well. Double whammy of an evening that was. Um, That's around five workers per week from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka. Uh, We're aware there's very poor working conditions. There's multiple reported human rights abuses happening there as well. And all, Taylor, just so we can have a lot of stadiums that will be used for about a month. It's, um, It's an uncomfortable proposition, isn't it, Taylor? It is. And I'm really happy that Noah asked this question. I think it's a conversation that we'll need to have a couple times on this show and elsewhere in the lead up to the World Cup because... So often when we have, I think back to 2010 in South Africa, 2014 in Brazil, six months before that tournament starts, I'm listening to the World Cup theme song and getting excited and looking at players and researching teams just because it's such an exciting event and such a global event at that. 
I didn't really feel that way with Russia because I wasn't so excited about Russia getting a World Cup, and I feel the exact same way about Qatar. Uh, but we should note a couple things here. I think, first of all, uh, this is not a defense of Qatar, and there's no butt coming, just a period. There is no defense of Qatar. But it's worth noting that this is a kind of a thing that FIFA has done throughout its history. There's the World Cup when Mussolini is in charge in Italy. There's the military junta in Argentina in the 70s. And there's even Russia in 2018, as I mentioned. So there's kind of a long, sad history of FIFA sending the World Cup to places that maybe it shouldn't be if we're trying to reflect the best of humanity. But I refuse to let that sort of poor decision-making and I would say corrupt decision-making from FIFA take away a thing I love. And I love the World Cup. And I don't think we as individuals can stop sports washing, but I think that doesn't mean we have to turn a blind eye to it. And it does seem like the discourse around Qatar has been that. It's either you have to be screaming from the rooftop about how horrible this is, or you have to just be silent head in the sand. Uh, no pun intended there. And I think it's about sort of showing the appreciation or the understanding for what has happened and the reverence at that. Um, put a different way, like the beaches of Normandy are just beaches until you understand the significance and the history and the context behind them. And I think that same thing for people going to Qatar, if people are attending, is to not just take photos of these beautiful shining stadiums and say like, oh my, it's so beautiful. These people really have it together. And I've already st started seeing that of the streets are so clean, everything's so organized, it's so wonderful. And that was all built in some ways literally on the backs of uh, not if not slave labor, then very, very uh, atrocious working conditions. And and so I think there's a, a reverence for if not reverence, I guess, but a, a sort of an understanding and awareness of what happened to make this happen. Um, I think further away from it, if you're not going to be there, I think we can't maybe be the change, but we can be some of the change, we as uh, Total Soccer Show hosts, but then the people listening as well. And I think there's ways that you could do that. I, I, I like the idea, I was thinking of maybe like pledging to give a certain amount of money per goal. Uh, and then with a total goal scored, we donate money. And I'm not sure what the best charity for that would be. Uh, maybe, maybe folks listening have some ideas on that one, but maybe that's a, a campaign we could start. So there ends up being some financial good to come out of it. But I also think the World Cup, similar to the Olympics, is, is just a truly great experience because it is ultimately people from all over the world caring about the same thing while still being their own thing. They're still rooting for their country, but they're coming together for this collective celebration. And I think we as individuals can reflect that. And so maybe that's as simple as just like eating different foods for different teams when you're watching them. But what I would say is go watch games with people from other communities or other countries. And if you're living in a big city, there's definitely ways to do that. But if you're not, go watch an El Tree game at your local Mexican restaurant. Like I think you can, you can find ways to get out of your comfort zone and experience what the World Cup is meant to be, which is a global party. And I think reflect that in your own decision making and your own thought process because ultimately your morality is your own our morality is our own and all you can do is sort of i think understand the situation be aware of what has happened and then also still enjoy the thing that you love responsibly yeah graham your thoughts on this one it, it does remain for me uncomfortable and i get what taylor's saying about the ways you mm -hmm. can sort of um i don't know facilitate that morality a little bit but it still feels to me a bit like pledging you know to be concerned about the welfare of animals but going to the burger restaurant a little bit yeah you know? i think it's certainly important to consider the role we play in the sports washing of qatar as fans because we're all fans and we're podcasters but we're fans of the sport and engaging in the world cup this winter will undoubtedly it's it's kind of what qatar wanted from this whole project so I, it makes me very uncomfortable the first thing to say is I don't have an issue with the World Cup being in Qatar as a country. And let me clarify what I mean when I, when I say that. When the tournament was handed to Qatar 12 years ago, or whatever it was, 11 years ago, the initial reaction was a lot about how they didn't have a football culture, they weren't a soccer nation. Soccer nation. I couldn't care any less about that. In fact, I like that the World Cup is going to a part of the world that it's never been to before. The, the World Cup doesn't just belong to Europe and South America, so I, I welcome it going to a new region. Where it's difficult, as we've spoken about already, is the is Qatar's record on human rights, the the number of largely immigrants that have that have allegedly died working on these stadiums, as you say, Ryan, the way that LGBTQ plus people are treated in the country as well, and there's still no guarantees 
on how they will be treated when they when they visit the the tournament for the World Cup, which is which is terrible and frankly unacceptable and not good enough. World Cups have been held in countries before with sketchy human rights records, Taylor, as you say. But the thing that makes me really uncomfortable about this World Cup is that it's so closely tied to the Qatari monarchy and the Emir. And since Qatar isn't a fully democratic country, which raises questions in itself, that just make, that alone makes me uncomfortable. They, the, the, the Emir and the monarchy, they have full control over this World Cup. So for anyone who doesn't know, and the four of us do know this because we've had first-hand experience trying to get accommodation in the country, if you want to book a hotel room or an or even an Airbnb in uh, Qatar for the tournament, that is uh, controlled by the Emir. You have to go through a centralized system. There is literally no other choice. You won't find a hotel room anywhere else on the internet. So that just kind of proves how impossible it is to separate the country and the people that rule the country from the tournament in this instance where perhaps you would be able to do that for in, in another World Cup. For instance, you know, the, the 2026 World Cup, I don't agree with a lot of the, the things that happen in America, but it's not as closely tied to the, you know, the, the, the presidency in, in America or anything like that, whereas in, in Qatar it is. And if you wish to boycott this tournament as a fan, I completely understand and support you in that. My personal view is that by per- participating in society, you are not to blame for how society is. It is unfair that FIFA has put football fans and players in this position. And as someone with a little bit of a platform as a writer and a, and a podcast, I feel a duty to talk about the issues in Qatar and with the country host- hosting the World Cup as often as I can to kind of always keep that in the forefront of people's mind. And as a fan, you could donate to, Taylor, you said a charity, maybe the best charity might be Amnesty International, who help workers in Qatar and they've documented the issues that they have faced. And if you go onto their website, there's a very clear donate button. So it's it's kind of similar to, you know, how people buy plant plant trees when they travel transatlantic or something like that. And maybe that is a cop-out. Maybe it is a cop-out, but that kind of illustrates the, the how just how uncomfortable I find this and how uncomfortable it'll make a lot of other people as well. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Graham, that we've been put in an unfair position by FIFA in, in this uh, in this context. But I think the game has put us in an unfair position for many years. You know, if, it, if it's bad to watch the Qatar World Cup, it's bad to watch the Champions League, which is sponsored by Gazprom. It's bad to watch the Premier League when Chelsea, Man City... Uh, and, and Newcastle are in there. We know where their money has come from. We know particularly with Newcastle, the Saudis and, and the human rights abuses, they've been um, uh, guilty of or certainly accused of as well. And this this game sold its soul a long time ago. I don't think we can argue with that. And we're we're on board with it or we're not. And we, ha- we are in an unfair position. I mean, Joe, what do you think about this? Because I feel like it, you can get granular with this kind of stuff in all walks of life. I mean... You know, should you even fly on a plane because you're damaging the environment? There's there's a decision to make on that kind of thing, or eating meat, like I mentioned earlier. There's there's lots of these micro decisions we have to make in our lives, and this is just another slightly uncomfortable one, Joe. It is, and I think it's I think this is strange, and this is the topic that is giving people so much pause because we're not used to actively confronting these kinds of issues in sports. That's not to say they're not there. Like, Ryan, you just walked us through the whole list of the Champions League and PSG and Newcastle and and whatever it is. They're there all the time, but they're not usually there on this scale. So it's flooring in a lot of ways to be confronted with this reality as we head closer and closer to the World Cup. I think ultimately I, I find myself in a similar spot to Graham and Taylor. It's difficult for us, and this isn't about us, but it's difficult for a lot of people who have some stake in soccer to say, nah, like we're not going to talk about that. I mean, it, it's not it's not easy. And, and a lot of people risk their livelihoods and, and certainly risk a pretty big chunk of their livelihoods by boycotting a tournament like this. So again, like like Graham, you said, if folks out there don't want to watch the tournament and and feel that it is not the right thing to do, I, I can really understand that. I really can. I don't know necessarily that we're in a position to be able to do that, right? It, it's a very challenging situation. I think the one thing that I keep coming back to is that it is impossible to fully separate politics and the reality of the world with sports. They are intertwined. Ryan, you mentioned that, and I've already talked about that. They're both people's lives I do think I do think you can watch the World Cup without actively supporting Qatar and their human rights abuses. It's it's difficult to do that and it's tricky and this whole thing is awful and FIFA has put everyone in a in a really unfortunate situation. I I think it's important to actively avoid avoid sports washing this event or participating in the sports washing. When we talk about Qatar, 
or, or really, one th- well, this is an incredibly small thing, but one thing I've tried to do is when I'm talking about the World Cup, instead of saying Qatar, just say the 2022 World Cup, right? Like little small things like that to try to separate the two from each other and, and stop looping Qatar and the atrocities that have happened to make this World Cup a reality, to stop tying them so closely together. The, the World Cup will happen. There will be fun moments. We're going to have fun watching parts of this tournament. And so will you, listener, if you decide to watch it, But none of those things will be because of Qatar and some of their policies. And we, I think, should remind ourselves of that. It's not really an answer to Noah's question, but those are some of the scattered things that I've been thinking about. I think think it is possible to watch this tournament without being, you know, bad or morally corrupt. I think maybe, like you said, Taylor, in the beginning of, of sort of our conversation about this, channeling some of that energy into positive change would be a really encouraging way to respond to this tournament. Yeah. And Joe, like, I I appreciate you saying you don't really like have the full answer because I think anybody who claims to have that full answer is being disingenuous at best because it's such a complicated, nuanced thing. And that's where Ryan, I think you nailed it. It's every day in life, we're confronted by a series of micro decisions. But when you try to remove that to make your life easier, uh, you can oversimplify things. And like a a strange example, I am very scared about water, not I'm hydrophobic, but the idea of water resources and drought and and water wars in the future. And so I try to conserve water uh, to the extent that I can, but I'm not going to stop using it entirely and then that will help preserve it. But I'm also not going to be like, you know what? It's inevitable. I can't do anything. So I'm just going to use as much water as I want and turn a blind blind eye to it. You have to kind of make those decisions every day if you want to reflect that internal struggle that you might have. And I think finding ways to be able to sort of process the the frustration we might be feeling about it being in Qatar and and everything that has already been laid out in this conversation, I think it is totally fair. But I think it's also worth extending that license to other people who might not have had the time to think about it yet. There's people who are going to be jumping into the World Cup because they jump into the World Cup every four years, but then they're also maybe learning about how bad things have been and the worker deaths and the uh, the an- like anti-LGBTQ issues. And, and so I think you have to, if you're a person who's been following that and paying attention to that, there's an obligation there to not just be like, yeah, I know it's terrible, but let's just watch the game. I think there's a responsibility to say like, yeah, it's, it's really, really frustrating. It's, I've been having a really hard time with it. And maybe that's an opportunity to have that conversation with somebody who might not be able to have it otherwise. And so rather than, I think, putting our head in the sand and saying, ah, oh, you know, it's terrible, but it's FIFA and they always make bad decisions, whatever. Let's just watch soccer. It's great. It's the best thing. In some ways, I think that's what they want. That's what FIFA wants. That's what Qatar wants. It's for us to say, Ah, it's a World Cup at the end of the day. Every country's got its own problems. And look how pretty everything is. And I think that is where I would feel really, really, really uncomfortable and not okay with it. But sort of trying to have that conversation and that struggle in this format, talking about it with you guys, people I respect and trust, I think is a good way to process some things and get my head around some issues that I might not otherwise be able to get around. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, Taylor. What I'm hopeful for, is that the teams there and the people traveling to Qatar um, make an uncomfortable situation for FIFA in some ways. Um, we've seen some teams, for example, um, wearing practice gear. I can't remember, was it Germany? Or maybe it was Norway who wore some sort of anti-Qatar um, apparel of some sort before before a game. This is weird, but do you remember, I don't know if you're familiar with the Hunger Games, but the, the main character works out this sort of symbol where she holds up three fingers and it's like a, a symbol of rebellion. Um, she's being hosted in this Katniss. Katniss, right? She's being hosted in this uh, Hunger Game, uh, and so it's it's this rebellion against the authority, and that's probably a, a not a very appropriate um, comparison. But what I'm hoping is there's some sort of symbology or something that's done by these teams that makes the conversation continue at home, that makes people sort of stand up and say, you, you know, not 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 see it as a, a glossy product that could be in any other country at this point. Yeah, and surely the point of something like that or the, the discussions that we aim to continue to have up until the World Cup and during the World Cup is to ensure that this never happens again. That if, if a country or FIFA ever flirts with the idea of treating workers in this way or, or handing the tournament to a country that it shouldn't be handed to, then they are essentially put off by the, the scrutiny that they're going to face for it. Unfortunately, there's nothing, and this is not to dismiss it, unfortunately, there's nothing now 
that we can do about what's happened that makes me feel helpless but hopefully we can we can ensure that things change in the future yeah because graham thank you for bringing that one up sorry listeners if we're going very long on this one question but again it's a complicated one but like it's interesting to me slash very frustrating that this is the conversation about uh qatar now and it should be but simultaneously like i believe last i read forgive me if this number is not exactly right but it was something like nine of the ten people who awarded the world cup to qatar have been indicted or investigated for corruption and right there like lest we forget there was open corruption that led and bribery that led to russia and qatar getting these world cups Uh, i will say allegedly so that ryan and graham don't get sued uh but (laughs) Like that's You're cool if I get sued, though. Yeah. I, well, I think America has maybe slightly uh, better, like I, I would say, better protections for Checks saying out. what Checks you want. <laughs> um, that seems to have been the case based on past times that Ryan and Graham got very quiet when I said things. Um, but I, I think it's <laughs> it's just like it's worth remembering that as well that there was FIFA corruption that led to the World Cup being in Qatar that they would very happily not talk about and hope we forget, and in some ways I think are happy that the focus is on like human rights abuses as crazy as that is, because there was also open corruption that has been investigated, but I wouldn't say has necessarily been rooted out entirely. And so that's also a thing I think is probably worth keeping in mind as we continue to talk about Qatar and FIFA. Noah, thank you very much for the question. We'll be back after these short messages with more. This episode is supported by season three of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Total Soccer Show, welcome back. We have a question here from Richard Rolson. Understanding that Gareth Southgate has changed the culture of the English men's national team, and though it hasn't won a tournament, it has had more success than many past English teams. That's very true. Uh, Is Southgate the manager to take the English men's national team to the next level? Where do you think he could improve to get more from the English team. Now, of course, this is a this is an interesting one to bring up at this point because it's been a while since England played a game. The last England game, of course, was a friendly against Ivory Coast in March. A 3 <laughs> win. And we haven't seen them since sure. then, so I don't, I don't quite get the timing of this oh. one. But, um, Graham, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm very pleased for the timing of this question. I enjoyed myself the other night that a cackle was let out in my living room when the fourth Hungarian goal went in and the booze rained down from Molyneux. Anyway, Gareth Southgate, there are a lot of questions about him at the moment after a pretty dreadful window uh, with England. I think he's undeniably been a successful manager for England, but I, I do have some doubts over his ability to take that final step and and not just because England got thumped by Hungary the other night. So between 2018 and uh, 2020, there was a process that Southgate was going through. So in 2018, he didn't really have the players to control the game, so England played on the counter-attack. I thought that was wise. Then at Euro 2020, he gave his team a bit more structure in midfield with the the... The, the the maligned, widely maligned midfield pairing of Phillips and Rice, but I think that gave them a, a foothold in a lot of games. But that, that came at the cost of creativity. It was a bit negative at the Euros. So the next part of the process was to add some creativity to that structure while keeping the structure in place. And I think Southgate has the players to do that. He has Grealish, Foden, Mount, even going deeper, players like Conor Gallagher, Emil Smith-Rowe, James Madison. England have loads of players in those positions that could do that. And so far, I would say that he has failed in that regard. Grealish and Foden and Mount in particular feels like they should be key members of this England team by now. And yes, they do play a lot of games, but even when you watch them, they still somehow feel peripheral, even when they're in the side. So I'm not saying England should go all out attack. I think having that pragmatism and structure is really valuable in knockout football. But I do 
well, I was going to say I worry. I don't worry at all. But I, I have doubts against high-caliber opposition whether England can impose their own game on those teams. And maybe Southgate could definitely do with taking the break off a little bit more. And that's, that's where I have my doubts over his ability to take that final step. Yeah, I think you've absolutely nailed it there, Graham. He is very conservative and safe in his approach. He's the missionary position of uh, international managers, isn't he, effectively? <laughs> he oh, my God. Wow. I mean, that's dead-on accurate. It's just also phenomenal. Thank you, Ryan. You're very welcome, uh, and it pains me to say it in many ways. I think but, it's uh, the vest that really sells that analogy, i got to say. <laughs> Indeed. But yeah, you, know, you know what I mean? It's, it's, it's his player selections. It's his, I mean, he switched up to a 3-5-2 in that. Um, there was actually a game listener. It was against Hungary earlier this week as we were Just record. one? <sighs> there were some others. Um, <laughs> there <laughs> was two watch. just against yeah. Hungary. <laughs> Let's uh, let's skim past those facts for a second. But it's, I, I mean, I, I I wonder if there is a, a, a next gear to go up to. I suppose for this for this England team in general, not just from a Gareth Southgate perspective, but you know, this is a team that I think should have certainly beaten Croatia in that World Cup semi final. I think they should have won the Euros as well. And I don't think I think they, that was the top of the arc for this team. And I don't. It doesn't look like things are going to resolve from this point. There's problems at the back, obviously, from from the Hungary game, but it seems like there's more problems up front for this team as well. Like just no ideas up front in, in that in that Hungary game at all. Yeah, and this- England had two shots on target in that. Or maybe it was in total. It was. it was either on target or total, and they were both from John Stones. Right, right. And, ha- and we can criticise Harry Kane, and I often do in an England shirt because I think he's overplayed, and, and Southgate doesn't is loath to select anyone else. Like Tammy Abraham has played a little bit, but you know he's been in fantastic form this summer and doesn't get a chance. And by the way, uh, um, Harry Kane uh, playing for Tottenham. I looked at the Premier League fixtures. There's six Premier League games in October. Uh, there could be up to nine Spurs games in October with cups as well. So Harry Kane playing nine times in the month before the World Cup and he's still going to play every minute. He's going to play every damn minute because that's what Gareth Southgate wants. And I don't know, I think as much as this is a talented England squad, I look at the central midfield, for example, and there's no Xavi or Iniesta there. There's no Thiago. There's no Joshua Kimmich. We've got Declan Rice, Jordan Henderson. The depth chart after that drops off a little bit, I would argue. Bellingham. I'd say Bellingham is is potentially world-class. Oh, very unpotentially world class in the hungry uh, in the games I've watched recently, I would say. But yeah, I get your point. But I think they're not quite at that level needed to be properly at the very elite level at the game. So there's no one sort of dictating play from the middle, I suppose. No one stamping their authority on the middle of the field, which you t- tends to tends to be a central tenet of a pop, uh, of a of a good international team. So yeah, coming back to my initial point, I just think. This arc may be over for this England team. I'm very worried about this World Cup now, having felt very confident, mm. but a couple of months ago. And Remember that time that I said that England might be in trouble and I, and I was laughed at and we, met you, with silence for saying that? You were wrong, man. Yeah, well, uh, I, I would love to gloat on that. I am still stuck on the fact that in the last question, Ryan brought up the Hunger Games, and now we're talking about the Hungary Games, and I get confused. <laughs> it's worth noting for people who are also confused. The Hunger Games... Uh, are a situation in which young people are forced to compete uh, for the attention of people who don't care if they live or die, whereas the Hungry Games are the same things, but people don't care if they live or die if they miss a penalty. <laughs> that checks out. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very yeah, good. I mean, I, I think it, it's... We got that question a couple weeks ago about when is it time to like stick with a manager, like the second cycle syndrome, and and I think it really does sort of depend on the coach. It depends on the situation and and how... The philosophy is instilled in the team, and this might be. I'm not saying it is, because I honestly don't feel comfortable enough to say one way or the other, but this feels like one, to your point, Ryan, where maybe you need someone to come in and, like, in a positive way, as positive it can be, sort of continue the evolution, and so you're giving credit to Gareth Southgate for what he did and the work he put in, but then... New broom sweeps clean, you're sort of able to get maybe a little bit of more of a response, and maybe that helps that evolution... I doubt that's able to happen between now and the start of the World Cup. So maybe it is Southgate figuring it out. But I think that's always sort of the conundrum of if you've already like built a team a certain way, then you've had them evolve. How do you continue that evolution while keeping everybody on board? Also, I, I'm sorry. England fans are like itching to get to the next level after making it to the World Cup yeah, semifinals right. in 2018, third place in the Nations League in 2019, and making it to the final of Euro 2020. 
there is no next level. Like, the, like that doesn't exist yes, there is, right Jared now. Is there, winning, though. Yeah, there's you not. You understand nothing about British culture, it is, Joel I, I am trying to rail against that culture because <laughs> it, it is honestly, and Richard, I know you're not saying this. I also, I, I'm pretty sure you're not an England fan, so this is not directed towards you. There is no, I'm, I'm telling you, there is it's no next level. It's directed towards Ryan. <laughs> it is directed towards Ryan and all of the United <laughs> Kingdom. No, just all of England. There is no next step for this team in terms of results. You will win. If you play that World Cup semifinal in 2018, England maybe wins five times out of 10 or six times out of 10 or whatever it is. If you play the final of Euro 2020, England probably wins five out of 10 times. They didn't. And that's just kind of how soccer works. And that's really how international soccer works. There is no manager on planet Earth that will get more consistent results than Gareth Southgate has gotten with England since he took over the team and coached them in 2018, 2019, 2020, and now headed into 2022. That does not exist. What England fans are are desiring, and Taylor, I think you really got to this point at, at the end of what you said there, is a manager that will help them play more entertaining soccer. England plays successful soccer they do not play fun soccer and i think england fans are probably tired of that in this nation's league window with two losses and two draws probably is the boiling over point for them so i i I can understand that i'm sympathetic to wanting to see more entertaining games but man whoever they get next they might win a world cup it's possible i'm not going to rule that out but the results by and large are not going to be better than gareth southgate have you ever been hung over and then someone slaps you in the face really hard that's feel like that's what Joe just did to me there. <laughs> Normally, I just have like a breakfast roll or something, but <laughs> yeah, uh, some real talk there. Um, I I think yeah, the, the conversation is there right, any, I got you. Is, I got anyone, you. Have you got some positives up for me, Taylor? Because it's been oh, very no, negative. Oh so no, I, I just I, I just <laughs> was th- I was thinking about that feeling that you're describing, and I and I would say it's when you're hungover and then you go to drink water, and the water tastes like almost sickly sweet because you're that hungover, and it's just like, oh, this is going to be bad. I feel like that's what this conversation has been for Ryan. It's not even I, just the hangover, <laughs> but the awareness of how bad the hangover is going to be. I just cannot fathom wanting to do better than making it to the semifinal and the final of the two biggest but, tournaments right. in the so world since 2018. I here's just my response to that, Joe, and I, I get what you're saying. England have done very well under Southgate. But I, when you look through the teams that they have beaten at these tournaments, and look, you, have, you can only beat the teams that are in front of you, I get that. But Germany at the Euros are really the only elite-level country that they have beaten. And so my suspicion is if they were to face two or three of those in a, in a run at a tournament which can happen, then I don't know if they're able to take their game to those sort of heights where they can where they can be proactive and actually use the players they've got. Because that's the thing with Southgate. That's the thing I find frustrating about Southgate is England have so much attacking talent, maybe more than any other nation. I would even say, well, maybe France because they've got Mbappe and, and Benzema. But any other country, I think England are better stocked in that area and it feels like a waste that they don't use those players better. So that, But then I, I understand like international soccer is very much about the teams that have the strongest structure and can get through knockout games and England have been very good at that. Yeah, I very much agree with that, Graham. I think the, the, the paths we had at the World Cup and the Euros were very favourable and I think we had the chance to get silverware and didn't take it essentially. And now when you look ahead to this World Cup, there's a lot of other national teams who are really gearing up for something like Germany look pretty terrifying now, for example. Um, you know, Argentina and Brazil are looking like they're probably going to make up the final at this point. So, um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm feeling a little negative. I'm sorry. Ryan, if, here's a positive for you. Let's, if the World Cup were to go poorly, and I'm not even saying it will, I think I have a vested interest as a U.S. fan in hoping that it does for you all, uh, if it means the United States is able to get out of the group. But uh, I still think England could go pretty far. Uh, who knows if they could win it all? But if they don't, and they're looking for a new manager uh, for 2026, there is a person who maybe doesn't jump out as being like the most successful manager at this point. Yes, uh, Big Sam if he's available. But if not, (laughs) uh, by 2026, this person will have managerial experience in England, and we'll see if he ends up uh, in the Premier League at that. But I think sometimes, especially with a national team, you you need somebody who has played for that national team, I think, and will resonate with the players, both in terms of what they have achieved, but also – in who they are as a person and some of the youthfulness that they bring, but the success they have had. Just say and Lampard Taylor. I will not. I will say a non-Englishman. I will oh. say Vin- Vincent Company, who oh. I completely missed, is now the manager of Burnley, yeah, Burnley. As of two days ago. Yeah. And with his success with Man City, the tutelage under Pep, the success he has already had at, at Anderlecht and then getting the Burnley gig, that feels like a person who, if he took over England, is going to command immediate respect 
and I think is like still young enough, still cool enough that people will respect him in that way, but also has the playing career that so many people would want that I think he commands respect that way. So if it does go poorly, I think there's another person who could come in and, and lead you all to that next evolution where you end up losing to the U.S. in the World Cup final in 2026. Yeah. I mean, all of all of Fergie's former players turned out to be great managers, so I can't see why name, uh, Pep's Graham, you yeah, can't, name, me, name me 25 that didn't. And then we'll we'll talk, all right? Just all I need is 25 examples. You could probably do it if you took a couple minutes. I hate that you yeah. could do it in 20 <laughs> Of former Ferguson managers who weren't very good, I reckon if with time, it wouldn't be the great listening experience. I could probably get to 25, I yep. reckon. We'll do it. Well, that's a separate podcast. All right. Oh, thank no. you. <laughs> thank you very much for the question, Richard. Now it's time to potentially point the torpedo of scorn at the Americans on the uh, on the podcast. Pete Johnson asks, if the USMNT was in UEFA, would we have qualified for the World Cup? Uh, how about if the USMNT was in Comnibol or CAF, etc. and so on? What do we think about this, gents? I think... Oh, Joe, I'll come to you first. UEFA 13 spots. Um, I'm looking through the depth of those 13 spots and who got through. I feel like um, the US would have a very good chance of getting through UEFA. The one I, the ones I think would be much more of a crapshoot would be Condobol and Cap yep. because yep. Condobol four or five, four, four and a half um, slots for there, and it's pretty brutal the way things go. And Cap is even more brutal. It's a crapshoot where there's five, only five spots, and you've got that last round where it's a knockout, fifty-fifty. You go through. Yep, you answered the question the same way I would answer it. I think I think the U.S. would have a decent chance of getting through in UEFA, not as good of a chance as in Concacaf which I think going through this is the easiest qualification path of these four confederations. But man, they would have a, a decent chance of getting through in UEFA. They would have been in pot two in the UEFA groups based on their FIFA ranking in November of 2020, I believe. That means they would have had one of the giants likely in their group. And I think they could have gotten out through qualification. I don't feel great about that, especially given that Italy and Portugal were two of the teams that had to go into the playoff section. But I feel a little better about that than I do feel about Conmebol and CAF. So Conmebol, 10 teams, I guess it would be 11 in this instance. Everybody plays everybody. Four and a half teams advance. Does anybody here feel all that good about the U.S. making it in over one of Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Ecuador, Peru, Colombia? One of those, two of those teams? It's not impossible. But I like their odds a lot better in CONCACAF. Actually, CONMEBOL and UEFA might be in a similar place for me. The, the real brutal one is CAF. The U.S. would have entered in the second round based on the FIFA ranking. So that's the group stage. Ten groups of four. Everybody plays everybody home and away. Winner goes to the third and final round. So I think the U.S. could have won their group in that group stage. But realistically, then you get out and you, you make it to the third round. And then this is the home and away two legs and that's it round. This is the most brutal round I think maybe in any confederation in terms of world cup qualifying it's a really unforgiving way to end up with just five teams out of a bunch that go to the world cup and i do not feel great about the u.s making it that's a little less about the teams although there is a ton of talent in calf don't get me wrong but more much more to do with just how unforgiving and crazy hard that qualifying path is in africa uh taylor your thoughts on this one uh i would echo everything joe said i do think uh in Strangely, UEFA, probably it is more likely that they qualify. I would say the U.S. would qualify out of Europe. Uh, obviously, the group is going to play a big part in that. Uh, but then I would echo that I think CAF and Common Bowl would be really, really difficult, again, for all the reasons Joe has mentioned. But also worth remembering, uh, the United States, as much like negativity, hostility as there is towards the team when they go on the road in Central America. It's not like we haven't messed up South America many, many times over and had uh, like our past uh, behavior, a.k.a. slavery, uh, has had a pretty large impact on Africa. So I have to feel that any U.S. team playing on the road in South America or Africa is going to get uh, more than a little hostile reception. And so I still think you'll get that hostility on the road and it will be very difficult to play on the road against now better opposition. I have a feeling the U.S. would very much struggle to make it to the World Cup from either of those confederations. If we're going to judge teams on the, their past histories and atrocities in other countries, then England's um, not having a fun ride anywhere it plays either, Taylor, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, no, not not so much. Not so much. Not Luckily, so much. you all have uh, completely lost all your power in global standing. So I think that, <sighs> that makes you a bit more sympathetic these days. It will happen to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, and maybe actively is. Yeah, <laughs> Graham, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Can the US do what Scotland couldn't in UEFA? 
I think I think they could. I, I it is it is more difficult on UEFA. I'll, I'll focus on UEFA because I think that Taylor and Joe you pretty much nailed it for calling the ball in calf. It would be trickier, and I do think it would be trickier in UEFA. Uh, for for the USMNT as well, I, that's not to say that they wouldn't qualify. I just think it's it's probably proper to say they they would miss more World Cups through UEFA. Just when you look at the teams that aren't going to this World Cup: Italy, Norway, Ukraine, Sweden, Turkey, Czech Republic, and they're not teams that are ne- even necessarily better than USMNT at this point. But they're they're countries and teams with quality and 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 pedigree. So if the US fell into the playoffs, then you know you could get paired against a, a truly great team like Portugal or one of the big nations and then you're not you're missing the World Cup and UEFA qualifying is is hard it's been like the bane of my life for the last few months because Scotland we lost one out of 10 fixtures in World Cup qualifying we won seven out of 10 drew two lost one we've won eight of our last 10 competitive fixtures which uh, coincidentally is the best record in UEFA right now and as Ryan keeps reminding me we will be watching the World Cup from home so European qualifying is tough as well maybe not as tough as uh, calling the ball and calf but uh, I think the US has got a pretty good situation with CONCACAF at the moment. Yeah, inclined to agree. Thank you very much, Pete. We need to take a break, but I want to squeeze in one more World Cup-related question before we do so from Sean Lopez. Would a combined North American national team, that's US, Canada and Mexico, be a contender to win the World Cup in 2022? Taylor, the answer's no, but why is it no? Uh, Because centre of (laughs) defence and goalkeeper is still a, a big old problem. Not just the United States that maybe has some decisions to be made regarding the defense and in goal. I I think we'll get to this one uh, later on, but I feel like if you're looking at a combined U.S. team, like maybe it's uh, our North American team, maybe it's Ochoa, maybe it's uh, Boyan or Carpo or Turner. But I I, like, I think that there are debates about all of them at national team level uh, to some, to varying degrees. I think maybe means it's not this like rock solid strength. And then really at center back, is it Zimmerman and Kamal Miller? Is it Kamal Miller and maybe Edson Alvarez? I, I think there is a lot of vulnerability there. The attack, uh, maybe out wide when it comes to the fullback spots, I think there's plenty of depth. But those sort of core positions are going to make it difficult, I think, to keep a clean sheet, especially as we get to the knockout round for the North American team. Retweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was weird when I was doing this team because a lot of the issues that the USMNT have, I found... Yeah. Had had the, the same issues existed because I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna plug all the the holes in the USMNT side with uh, Mexicans and Canadians. Essentially, that was my process, and I found all the best Canadians and Mexicans, apart from centre forward, where obviously Jonathan David or, or even Kyle Lahren or Raúl Jiménez, yeah. there's quite a bit of choice there. But besides that, I found a dearth of excellent centre backs because I've got Edson Alvarez in my midfield. Actually, I prefer him in midfield for for Ajax. And then, as you say, like goalkeepers, centre-backs, the only one that kind of did. So I'd say uh, up front, Jonathan David, and then obviously putting Alfonso Davies into that team, is that makes that the, the side stronger. But besides that, there's still holes in this team. So I've kind of got... Uh, they get to the quarterfinals, and then depending on the draw, you yeah. have a shot at the semifinals was where I had them. Graham, yeah, um, I would love to know... The other thing that I was very like consciously aware of, perhaps too too much so, is that... The United States did not top CONCACAF in World Cup qualifying, so I didn't just want to take the U.S. team and then think, these three players, add them in, and now you've got a really strong team. If you were, Graham, listing out your sort of preferred starting 11, can you give it to us to see what that sort of split looks like? Yep, so my 11 was uh, Matt Turner, uh, Dest, Zimmerman. I know I know Miles Robinson isn't going to play at this World Cup, but I've still got Robinson, and I don't know if that's Cheater. allowed or not. But that kind of reflected how... I didn't really have a better option, I felt. So I've gone Zimmerman, Robinson, Alfonso Davies. I've got Edson Alvarez, Musa McKenney, uh, Tecatito. I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, of, of Tecatito. Uh, Tecatito. Mm-hmm. I can never say that. Corona. And then I've got Pulisic and Jonathan Davids up front yep. as my team. Okay. That's about what I was. Joseph, cool. anything to add on this one? I just would pay real money to see Alfonso Davies and Gio Reyna play for the same team. And they are in my team. And it would be so much fun. That's it. <laughs> Maybe they will soon. Maybe. <laughs> we shall see. Uh, thank you very much, Sean, for the question. Uh, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, a few more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. 
Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to listener questions, including this one from Estuardo Carpio, who says Ghana's national team is the lowest ranked team and they've decided not to play in the World Cup. This is a a hypothesis, not not an actual news breaking we're doing here um fifa has tasked the tss experts to put together a rest of the world team to replace them so the question is who makes the starting 11 and you have to use at least one player from each confederation who is the coach and how far does this team go in the tournament firstly i'll say i'm shocked that ghana are the lowest rated team because saudi arabia and qatar are also in this tournament so that's that was a news for me uh secondly i'll say i had a lot of fun putting together a team but i didn't understand the assignment because I missed out the uh, <laughs> one player from each confederation thing. So my sincerest <laughs> apologies to Oceana because I did not um, read the question properly. But uh, Graham, would you like to hear my team all the same? Yes, go for it. All right, I'm going for a 3-5-2. I've got Donnarumma in goal. I've got a mm-hmm. back three of Spinazzola, David Alaba. And um, this was the hardest position to fill was right back. Uh, I had to go with yeah. Adam Lang for Hungary because... He assisted a goal this week, and he was fresh in my mind. Uh, otherwise, it was... you did this while watching the Hungary England game, didn't you? That game and never sorry, happened. But yes, Ryan. Does yeah. your back three have like two fullbacks in it? I'm just trying to understand here. No, it doesn't have any. <laughs> well, he's Tactics a right back. Adam Lang's a right back. Um, and Spinazzola is like a. <laughs> never yeah, mind. Keep what? going. Keep Spinazzola's going. Keep center back. Thank You're you, doing Joe. Great. <laughs> Spinazzola can play left back, right? I'm pretty sure he does. Oh, I thought I thought this was a back but three. You're not playing Keep a back going. three. Whatever. You got well, it. Yeah, all right, he can play a left-sided centre-back. <laughs> Whatever. This, this How is... many fullbacks are in? How many countries are in this country? <laughs> oh, goodness me. I think, the, right. I think the answer to both, Graham, is four. <laughs> I've got a midfield uh, of Jorginho, Franck Kessie, and Martin Odegaard. Uh, wide players, Luis Diaz and Riyad Mahrez. And my two up front, Mo Salah and Erling Haaland. Uh, this team wins the World Cup. It's my theory. I mean, maybe it, with the with the caveat that it's not immediately disqualified for not having an Oceania representative. But yes, otherwise, yeah. a solid uh, lineup there, Ryan. I think one or two of the players have been to Oceania on vacation there once or go. twice. Does that count? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I, I think I'm going to guess uh, Graham has gone one way with his Oceania player, and Joe and I have gone the other way with ours. I hmm. I think I've gone a third oh boy. uncharted way, oh but I'll I'll go last, so you guys can go ahead and, and give me your teams. Uh, okay, who's going first? Uh, Graham, you can go. Okay, so goalkeeper Donnarumma. I've gone four three three, so left back. I have to go with Andy Robertson. I think there's a pretty good case for him. I cry that he is in this team because I wish he was going to the World Cup. But anyway, centre backs: Alessandro Bastoni, Italy; uh, David Alaba, Austria. Right back: I've gone Vladimir Kufal, Czech Republic. Ah. Then I've gone Marco Verratti, Italy; Frank Kessie, Ivory Coast. This is where we get a bit funky. Funky. Uh, so I've got Omar Ab- Abdul Rahman for UAE. So I needed an AFC player, and he's been the, the UAE's poster boy for years. And I used to write about uh, football in UAE, which is a bit strange. True story. He is great to watch. He's capable of like really great moments of brilliance, good with free kick, and he had like trials with Man City, and there was a lot of talk of him going to Europe for a long time. So he is my representative from uh, from AFC. Then I've gone uh, Leon Bailey, Jamaica on the left side. So he's my uh, CONCACAF representative. Then I've gone uh, Chris Wood, New Zealand. I needed an OFC player and he seemed like the highest caliber one. I really wanted to put Erling Haaland in, but I couldn't figure out another OFC player to put in. And then right uh, side, I've gone Mohamed Salah. And my coach is Roberto Mancini. And I know Italy failed to qualify for the World Cup, but let's face it, it's Mancini. He's, he's the best non-World Cup manager at the moment. I just realised I didn't have an AFC, OFC, or Concacaf player in my team. <laughs> wow, I really misunderstood. The you assignment. really did not read the assignment. <laughs> Wonderful Gra- stuff, Graham. Uh, Graham, how, who is how your, far is that team? Sorry, who is Graham's AFC player? Uh, Omar Abdul Rahman. Okay, UAE. Yeah, there we go. 
And how how deep does this team go, Graham? Uh, I think the uh, I don't know round round of sixteen and then potentially quarterfinals. I think if if I'm able to swap Haaland for Wood, then maybe you're even pushing as far as the semifinals. But I'm not allowed to do that because I'm sticking to the rules, Ryan Bailey. <sighs> Such a stickler for the rules, Graham. You are, aren't you? Uh, Taylor, <laughs> what about you? Can, can we hear Joe's first? Uh, I want to see. Where, I'm really excited to hear where Joe went with his. Okay, so I have Andre Blake in goal from CONCACAF, so yep. that takes care of one. Yep. I have Khalid Ibrahim at right back, who's a right back for the UAE, so that's my Asian confederation checked off the list. I don't know anything about Ibrahim, but he's a 25-year-old right back, and he plays for the UAE, he plays in the UAE, and he played as a right back in the World Cup qualifier against Australia last week, which they lost. My point in picking Ibrahim and my left back, which I'll just go ahead and say right now, Liberato Casase, who plays for New Zealand, and he plays for Empoli, so that takes care of Oceana, is I want to use the best players I possibly can at center back, at goalkeeper, in the midfield, and in the forward line. Unlike Graham, I... I just couldn't stomach sacrificing Erling Holland for Chris Wood. I, I can't do it. And so I had to find some other place to put these players who can do a job, but maybe they're going to be a little more defensive and let my midfield and attack just go for it. So those are my my center back and my fullbacks. I have in a 4-3-3, Alessandro Bastoni as well of Italy, David Alaba of Austria. I think those have already been said by multiple people at this point. I have Ndidi as my number six from Nigeria. So there's Calf taken care of. I have Marco Verratti and Nico Barella, both play for Italy of PSG and Inter, respectively. I have them as my two number eights. I have Erling Holland up top, Mo Salah on the right, and Luis Diaz on the left. And I am so proud of this team. I think it is really, really good. Wow. Your 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 attack puts mine to shame, I have to say, Joe. I've got Chris Wood leading the line in my attack. And I don't know, Graham, if like I don't know whose approach is better. If it if it's better to go a little more conservative and have really high quality players in the defense. I know I kind of poked fun at Ryan for for not having a defense. I don't have a great one either, <laughs> but I'm counting on being a little more reserved defensively and trying to give those players at least some cover. Diaz and Salah both know how to press and do that a lot for Liverpool. So I'm hoping we'll get some cover from them and, and from Barella and Verratti in midfield. But Ndidi is really going to do a lot of work for me in this shape. All right. You love the team, Joe, but how, how far does it go? I mean, I, I, we're definitely making it out of the group. I'm pretty confident we're making it into at least the quarterfinals. When you look at this attack of Salah, Diaz and Haaland with Verratti and Barella and Ndidi in midfield, this to me feels like a semifinal or in the final kind of team. Very good. And are you the coach? I hope you're the coach. Mancini. Uh, I'll, I'll be sitting on the bench just taking fashion advice from Mancini and everyone who yeah, dresses can him. You, can you wear a blazer better than Mancini? No. Nobody can. Not, no one can. Yeah. yeah. Certainly not. Question. <laughs> uh, Taylor and Joe, thank you very much for neither of you putting Giorgio Chiellini in your team. Taylor, don't let the side down. Uh, I will not because uh, I went <laughs> for, I think I got everybody because I also had Ibrahim as my right back. Joe, great minds. Uh, nice. But yeah, I also went for not having any duplicate nations. So if I used a player from Italy in one spot, I wasn't using any more Italians to try to spread things out. I've got Andy Robertson at left back. Uh, sorry, I've got Andre Blake in goal, as does Joe. I've got Andy Robertson at left back, David Alaba at left center back, Bill Tuiloma of New Zealand as my other center back, with Whew. Ibrahim on the right. Not the strongest of defenses. Uh, Wilfred and Didi in the middle with Nico Barella and Franck Kessier uh, on either side of him. So those are my eights. Erling Haaland ahead of them with Luis Diaz on the left and Mohamed Salah on the right. And I cheated a little bit with the manager, but I, I took it to mean we can't choose a manager who will be managing at the World Cup. So my manager is Carlo Ancelotti, who will not be managing at the World Cup, but oh, will that's be managing allowed. my team. <laughs> <laughs> Fine. He'll be uh, Roberto Mancini's assistant. There's your loophole. Did, did you think by making life more difficult for yourself by only picking from one nation per player <laughs> that you could just have free reign on who your manager was? <laughs> uh, maybe that. Maybe the fact that I forgot to pick a manager until I started talking to answer this question. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Maybe, maybe a little bit of both. A little bit of both. I'm going to allow it. That's well within the rules of the question, Taylor. Well done. In your face, Graham. <laughs> Damn. Uh, but and did, oh, sorry, go ahead, Ryan. I was going to ask you if you would grace us with the knowledge of how far this team will go in the tournament. Not that far. Uh, I think they're probably losing, if not their first knockout round game, then their second one, just because there's so much attacking talent in here that I think they can overpower some teams in the group stage. But eventually they're going to get found out on the counter and maybe that, and you can't really bunker with that team. I guess you could sit and, and try to counter or try to press a little bit, but overall I think they're getting uh, maybe eliminated in that fifth game. Wonderful stuff. All right, uh, before we move on, do we have consensus on who picked the best team? Uh, Joe had a lot of confidence in his team, I'll say that. 
I I do. I don't know if mine's the best, but I I love it so much. Like my like my child. I think I think mine is best, but I'm obviously disqualified. So uh, <laughs> yes, you are, Graham. What do you think? I feel like Joe sold has the best. So let's go with Joe. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll vote Joe. Three three votes for Joe. Taylor, you in unanimous? No. I, oh. I, I I vote for me. How dare you all? No, yeah, yeah, Joe wins. Joe wins. Uh, I'm just trying to be difficult. I also enjoyed, between this and the North America question, the commonality of teams that did not make the World Cup. Uh, I have a lot of options at number nine, a lot of options in central midfield and in wide attack, even in goal. But right back, left back, center back, the options sort of dry up fairly quickly, which I think is indicative of maybe why some of these teams won't be at the World Cup. Indeed. Thank you, Oswaldo, for a, a really good question. Great thought exercise there. Uh, let's go to one more question from Forrest Lyle. Back once again, Forrest. Uh, it's a question for Joe. Based off the most recent MLS salary figures versus league table positions, which teams are over or underachieving and which teams are, yep, that's about right. <laughs> uh, Joseph, the floor is yours. I'll ask, are there any, I don't know, North Carolina teams in playoff spots who didn't spend a lot? Yeah, there are. And they're in my overachieving category, Ryan, which is a good thing for the purposes of this exercise. So just up front really quick before I go rapid fire through some of these teams, this data is two months old at this point. So all data is accurate as of April 15th. That's per the MLSPA. So there's a lot that has already changed and a lot that certainly will change as the summer goes on. Even now, some of these things are out of date. But just going off of where teams were on the list when it was released and where they are on the table today, which is a flawed exercise, but we're doing it anyway. RSL are my first overachieving team. They are third in the West and they have the lowest total guaranteed salary in the league. They've already signed a DP. So again, that's not right anymore. But still, they are doing a lot on the field with relatively little. They're doing a lot in terms of results with relatively little. Let me put it that way. Charlotte is my second team in this category. Sixth in the East. They have the second lowest salary in the league. They are getting results and doing a lot better than I thought they would in terms of results this season, which I think is is great for Charlotte and great for you, Ryan Bailey. Philadelphia, I have on this list as well. They're second in the East and they're real trophy contenders with the 10th lowest salary. That's kind of their brand, along with the Red Bulls brand, who are fourth in the East and have the ninth lowest salary in the league. They have really definable styles and philosophies of play that help them carry success from year to year and generally help them maximize their investment. LAFC, top of the Supporter Shield standings, they're 11th from top. So they're, they're the 11th team, I should say, in the league in salary spend. That's that's overachieving, I would say. And NYCFC, top of the East, but 7th in the league in salary. They are probably the best team in MLS this year, just by and large. It'll be interesting to see what happens without Ronnie Dyla and how they adjust without Tati Castellanos. But still, I think they're overachieving where, based off of what they're spending Going into, oh, Seattle, real quick, sorry, before people get mad at me. One CCL, they're sixth in the league in salary. They're not doing well in the league, but that's fine. When you win CCL, it's okay. Underachieving, I'll go more rapid fire this time. Atlanta, first in salary, 11th in the East. Galaxy, second in salary, fifth in the West. Miami, third in salary, ninth in the East. The Revs, fourth in salary, eighth in the East. Really just the top five teams in terms of salary spend are, in my view, massively underperforming. Chicago Fire, fifth in salary. It's great that they're spending. They are one of the worst teams in MLS, and they are the worst team in the Eastern Conference right now. Toronto, eighth in the league in salary, 12th in the East. There's a lot of teams that have done a poor job in the past or in this in this really most recent season of managing their salaries and spending money wisely. Um, there's a lot of teams in that category, probably more than there are in the overachieving category. As far as just right goes, uh, a couple nominations. Dallas are ninth in MLS in salary, and they're comfortably in the upper third of MLS in quality, which feels about right. And Cincinnati, 12th in salary, and they're 7th in the East, which again is about equal when you look at results and look at what they're spending. So I I don't know. I, I don't really have any major takeaways from this exercise other than the one that I'd guessed going in which is just that a lot of teams are bad at spending money. A lot of teams are are good at it, too, and have done a good job this season. But I keep coming back to Atlanta, the Galaxy, Miami, New England, although their salary, I imagine, is going to go down a little bit now that Books is out. But I don't really know. And Chicago, spend money better. Still spend it, but just spend it better. Comprehensive stuff, Joe. Thank you very much. Uh, Excuse my ignorance on this topic, but does anyone devise a table of like points per dollar or points per spend? Is there anyone who has the data to show us who overachieves the most? I mean, I think we all have the data. It's a matter of just actually doing it. Um, it, it shouldn't be that difficult. I know, I believe it's Steve Fenn on Twitter who does a lot of like visual stat breakdowns when the when the roster 
not the roster, when the salary release comes out each year. So maybe that could be a good place to look. And American Soccer Analysis is where I got all of this data in terms of it, it being tabulized very easily. That's a word, right? Tabulized? Is that a word? It is now. I said it. Okay. They have it in a big table Tab- on their website. Tabulated. It's great. Tabulated. That's the one, Taylor. See, this is why they pay you the big bucks. Either way, <laughs> ASA has a very sure. good breakdown of who's spending the most, <laughs> but I don't believe it's cross-referenced with any sort of points. Um, but Ryan, you could be the one. You could do this for us. Yay, math. Thanks Yay. for the homework, Joe. <laughs> Yay, you're welcome. <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. Indeed. And I think that just about wraps up our listener questions exercise for the week. Thank you very much, Joe Larry. That was wonderful. You got it, Ryan. Graham Rusbin, thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And Taylor Rockwell, a pleasure as always. Uh, a pleasure for me as well. Graham, in your face, I could only come up with a list of 17 failed managers that played under Alex Ferguson. Couldn't even get to the full 25. Did you have Jordi Cruyff? I feel like you might I be missing a lot of failed Scottish yep, managers who never made it to England. I didn't, so. but down Gordon Strachan, would he be considered a failure or no? Uh, yeah, why not? I'm I'm not a massive <laughs> right. fan. Well, then now so, we're at, yep, you've got well, 18. Well, now we're at 19, because I forgot about Jordi Cruyff. <laughs> there we go. All right, we'll keep the list going. But for now, listener, thank you so much. We'll be back on the feed very shortly. But for now, Bye. Bye.